This is Unearthed, a podcast brought to you by the WBRU News Team. And I'm your host, Audrey Kim. This is a two-part series that includes our other episode, Maria. Both of these episodes focus on how two different individuals have handled the discovery that a close friend has sexually assaulted someone. You can listen to either of them in any order. Here's reporter Chloe Burns. Michael has had the same two best friends his entire life. Ever since the first grade, Chris and Matt have been by his side. But we became fast friends. You know, I still remember, like, we had similar interests. We both, we all loved Star Wars. We all loved, you know, military history. We all loved, like, Pokemon. Um, And we would just play in each other's backyards. And we'd always, you know, use our imaginations and we, you know, pick up sticks and they would be like rifles and guns and we'd pretend that we were we were soldiers in like World War II in Star Wars or whatnot and we'd see all the imaginary enemies like behind the trees, we'd jump around, um, you know, we'd shoot at things, we'd pretend that, you know, whatnot, like, and then we'd go back to each other's house, we'd play video games, you know, one of the parents, um, Chris's mom, Matt's mom would, you know, make us cookies, hot chocolate, um, I was always the one who had to leave first because I had you know, piano lessons and whatnot, but that was, that was always our dynamic. Um, and that followed through all the way to, to senior year. During his freshman year of college, Chris told Michael that he had been accused of sexual assault at his university. He was suspended while the investigation was taking place and confided in Michael about how unfair it all was. At first, Michael thought it was a misunderstanding. Chris had always been forward in the way he approached girls. He comes from, I guess, uh, a place where he's, I'd say, a bit too physical in terms of like, oh, like when he's dating someone, like, you know, there's always like those dating tips, like, oh, like you express interest by tapping them on the arm or or whatever, like establishing some sort of physical contact. Like, there's always a, there is no definite barrier. Like a definite threshold as to what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And I think he usually irks on the line of too much. And so I've always given him, I guess, leniency in terms of this is his form of relationship. This is how he pursues, um, and, you know, pursues women, essentially. Michael knew that this was not the first time that Chris had done something like this. Earlier in their freshman year... Chris had also told him that something had happened between him and his former girlfriend during their senior prom night. Freshman year of college, so October 2016, um, he told me, uh, Michael, I, 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 I'd done something terribly wrong to this girl. Um, and what it essentially boiled down to was attempted rape um, that night. Um, and by some miracle, it didn't end up happening, like, because... But... He told me that he has profusely apologized to this girl, and she has accepted his apology. Um, And my thought process then was that, okay, if the girl, if, you know, if his ex had already accepted his apology, what right do I have to not accept his repentance? Like, he's, like, the actual victim herself has already agreed that this is not fine, but that, that, like, you know, she's vindicated him. I shouldn't hold him to anything. And so we still were friends because it looked like he had 
was, he was genuinely remorseful and that he had learned from his mistakes. Though Michael and Matt were both best friends with Chris, Michael was the only person that Chris told about prom night or the Title IX investigation, and Michael had kept it to himself. And so it's interesting that he... So he only told me, um, and I think it's because, as I said earlier, I think Matt is a better person than I am. He's definitely much more black and white on the moral compass. Um, I think Chris knows that I'm someone who appreciates both sides. I'm someone who definitely um, enjoys playing devil's advocate, and I think in this case he's knew that well enough to take advantage of the fact that he knew that I was going to listen to his side without coming to any judgment first. And that's what I did. Um, Because I, I, I trusted him throughout the whole thing. Maybe that was my fault. But over the next summer, he heard the other side of the story from a mutual friend. I thought that it was a, a bad game of telephone gone wrong, and I made it my personal effort to literally track down who told my this mutual friend and then who told this guy. And then like through like five degrees of removal, I made it back to the original uh, victim of the case and then other witnesses who were there at the party that night. And unfortunately, you know, they corroborated that this actually did happen, but the victim herself didn't want to go through the whole, you know, university system, especially during finals week of testifying and providing evidence of uh, this event. As he listened to the victim's side of the story, he quickly began to believe that his friend was responsible for the assault. It was, for me, I think it was just the level of detail that was consistently repeated throughout each source to the victim, to the witnesses that night. Um, And then coming to a conclusion where I'm like, okay, I can see why Chris, because of his interpretations of boundaries, would pretend to say that, would, would twist and rationalize this into a way where nothing really happened. But I can see that this totally and probably happened. And I can see that to my definitions of what sexual assault is, this was sexual assault. Um, and so that's kind of, like, my transition was, I think, not as jarring as I as a lot of people's. It was really just, okay, this is him not interpreting what is sexual assault. Like, him not interpreting blatant sexual assault because he his boundaries are just not aligned with what societal norms are, in my opinion. After hearing from the latest victim in college, it was clear that Chris had repeated his behavior. Michael wanted to confront him about it. So, so once I found out, um, I was presented with a few. Like, I presented myself with a few options. It was either I directly confront Chris without telling any of our other friends, or I tell all of our friends and we all go and confront Chris, or I tell you know our closest friend Matt, and then the two of us talk to him. And I chose the last one because I think it's the most fair. Because I was not confident in my own ability of directly confronting Chris himself. Because I know he's charismatic. He was like the center of our friend group. If I had broached him with this issue, I was worried that he would immediately reach out to all of our, all of our other friends, let them know that something was up. Michael knows something that is twisted, and this is the actual thing that's happened. Don't listen to him. And I felt that if I had just told all our friends before confronting uh, Chris, I think that's that'd be disingenuous on my part. Um, I don't want to spread things that I can't confirm until I know that uh, that I'm 
confident in my own word. And so that's why I chose to tell only Matt, and the two of us confronted him. Michael told Matt, who didn't take the news well. Um, he was... He was shocked. Like, he was... Like, there's a lot of people who say, like, oh, I was speechless. He was literally... Like, he did not talk for ten minutes. Um, and this is also where I had to break it to him about what had happened with um, Chris's ex in high school, which, frankly, like, a, a attempted rape it was is much worse than what the Title IX offenses were at college, at, at the college. And that shocked um, Matt even more because we know this girl. Um, not that that should make it any more impactful, but, like, I mean, as humans, like, you know, I think it means more to you when you can put a face and a name and experiences to that person. Um, and after just moments of, minutes of silence, he goes, let's call a lawyer. Like, let's, let's call up his ex. Um, and let's first let her know that we're so sorry. Like, we're so sorry that you couldn't tell us, even though we see ourselves as, as decent people, you couldn't tell us because you knew that we were friends with Chris. And we're so sorry for the last two years where we still hung out with, you know, Chris on social media, like, in your presence... Um, and that you felt like you couldn't tell us your story and your experience because we, because, you know, I assumed she would think that we would stand by Chris. And so we, you know, apologized to her. Um, and then we asked her if she had wanted to move forward with something. Matt and Michael's goal was to try and bring a criminal case against Chris. But Chris's ex-girlfriend did not want to come forward. There was... A lot of back and forth. I think we were actually persuading her to the point where she was willing to testify and do so. Um, but she was held back by her parents, who had thought she was doing very well in college. And she already, she you know, had a new boyfriend there who did not know of the situation. Um, and it was like, why didn't she go to the police immediately afterward? You know, it's been almost two years since the event. Um, and like the whole idea is like the whole idea like I don't want my daughter on the stands, and so we talked to this very conservative father of this girl, and he was like, "Don't try to air this dirty laundry." And so you know I guess the the the, the most powerful witness of that that could attest to the the chronic length of his of Chris's actions was withheld from us essentially because of her parents. Um, and all the other girls that Chris had interacted with at the former college didn't want to come forward because, you know, Chris was going to another school. It wasn't their problem anymore. And I think a lot of times, and I think it's completely, completely within the right of the victim to say, I want to be done with this experience forever. Um, and while I know that it's socially... It's socially better if I put in some, you know, put in my time and my emotions to try to stop this from happening again. Sometimes I just don't want to. And I don't think it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's their life. And, like, this person's already taken away so much from them. Like, why would they, why would, why would, like, two random strangers who are apparently friends with this guy convince you to 
come forward in court, you know? So we understood how our position stood relative to these victims. So we don't, uh, Matt and I weren't too shocked by the cold response that we got. Um, and so that's why we were like, okay, so the, the most that we can do is just distance ourselves from Chris. So Michael and Matt finally confronted Chris to his face about his actions. Mm-hmm. We did. We went over to his house. Um, he was like, you know, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> and it, this was, it was, and then we we're like, Chris, we need, we need, to, let's let's go outside, let's let's talk. And then we we asked him, this is what we know. What do you have to say? And this was just the strangest thing, where he did not say anything, and he's like, give me one moment. Chris went inside the house, printed out his written statement for the Title IX investigation, and gave it to them to read. He didn't say a word. He just gave this document to us. Maybe it was because he knew that like, he couldn't formulate words, or maybe it was just like, I mean, I, I don't know. So... Matt and I just sat there with him watching us, like, just, and we just read this thing. And it put him in, you know, the best light possible, I guess, because he wrote it. And we basically said, all right, uh, thanks. Um, I think we'll have to think about this for <laughs> a few days. And we left. Um, took a drive, went and got lunch, look, looked at the document. The statement painted Chris in the best light, and dismissed all of the allegations as a misunderstanding. It was clear that Chris was still trying to paint a picture of innocence for his friends. After collecting their thoughts, they visited Chris again. Um, and two days later, we met with Chris again. And I think what... what kind of made Matt and I decide explicitly what we were going to do was when Chris essentially was angry that this had followed him back to our town. He did not seem to express any sort of remorse as to the supposed event, only frustration that it, has, it had followed him back. I had thought that, you know, I was going to get a clean slate. I had thought that, you know, I'd be able to start afresh at the new school. And that was so telling, I think, to, to Matt and us that, like, he wasn't genuine in, in his previous apology to his ex, and I don't think he learned any lesson. Together, Michael and Matt decided to end their lifelong friendship with Chris. But the reason why I chose to cut him off and why Matt chose to cut him off is because it was essentially to us like a repeated offense where he seemed so genuinely remorseful before and his entire demeanor, his entire character was called into question by the fact that you know, he can, either he was genu- genuinely remorseful and didn't learn, or he was faking it the whole time, which is even more scary to me that he was able to convince me to such a degree and convince his ex to such a degree where she even forgave him of what he tried to do. So I think that's where my decision came into play. Both Matt and Michael cut Chris off. They stopped seeing him, stopped talking to him. A couple months after their confrontation, 
Chris tried to give Michael an expensive video game for his birthday. Michael angrily refused the gift, offended that Chris was trying to buy back his friendship. And I felt really bad because at the end of the day, I didn't confront him one last time. I wrote him a very long letter and I sent it to him. So I basically broke up with my best friend over text, sent him this long letter, and then he wrote, all right, period, goodbye, Michael, period. And that's the last I've heard. To make things even more difficult, Michael's family has recently moved into Chris's neighborhood. Michael still sees him walking his dog every now and then, driving around town, but he stays steadfast in his decision. Um, I remember trying to explain to my parents without explaining the whole situation. Um, because um, we went from literally like hanging out every day because it was summer vacation before um, college started back up again and we were living right next to each other. It went from like me saying like, oh, hey, I'm not going to be home for dinner. Like I'll just be at um, you know, Chris's house to suddenly like I just stopped mentioning him. And my parents were like, hey, did, did, did something happen? Like, what's going on? And I'd say, like, oh, like, nothing. Like, don't worry about it. Um, and eventually it came up, and my father was like, and after I explained this to him, my father was like, so what does this have to do with you? Like, he's, he's been so good to you for the past decade. He helped you through your struggles, um... And you helped him through his, you helped him through his mother dying, and now you're abandoning him because of this. It's been three years since Michael ended his friendship with Chris. He's not sure if it's helped or if it's done anything towards fixing Chris's behavior. A few of his friends still go to school with Chris. Through them, he was able to hear the story that Chris has been telling people about why his two best friends no longer talk to him. And he was telling them that, you know, this girl, you know, the, the, the classmate from the original college, had brainwashed, had brainwashed Matt and I. Um, and that we were being, like, overly liberal, and we weren't giving him, we weren't giving his side of the story, like, a fair level of consideration. And hearing this just made me so sad. Um, because I think it was clear that ultimately he has created a narrative where he's still the victim. He's created a narrative where his two best friends abandoned him as opposed to, I know that I did something wrong. I mean, I hope deep down that's what he actually understands and that he's, this is his surface level narrative. But if that's what he really believes that, oh, we abandoned him because we were brainwashed or misled, I think my decision was wasted because I think I've been more hurt by losing him than he has at this point. And Michael still grapples with his decision. Did he make a difference, or did cutting his best friend off just give him a free pass? Um, so I think in that light, my excommunication of, you know, Chris, I think it was still the right decision. I grapple with it, but... And sometimes I think it's unfair, because I think he isn't as hurt by it compared to me. Like, I feel like I've hurt myself more than he is hurt by this severing of friendship. And that makes no sense to me, because it's like, why am I punishing myself? I, you know, I lost my girlfriend that year, and now I cho- cho- choose to throw away my best friend. But 
because he's not getting any other sort of punishment. This is the most that I can do, in my opinion, to make him realize that he's done something wrong. This episode is brought to you by the WBRU News Team in Providence, Rhode Island. Special shout out to Ellie Morimoto, Elise Hart Kipnis, John Klein, and Chris Bannon for their help. Also, big thanks to Credo Duarte and Alex Stewart for scoring our intro music, and Yashi Wang for our swanky graphics. The mission of Unearthed is to have people talk to one another, so we'd love to hear your thoughts. Leave us your comments on iTunes, or DM us on Instagram, or email us. Thank you for listening.